Hi, and welcome to Listen Up A-Holes, the only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that becomes more ridiculous the longer you know it. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. And I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar from Pulp Diction Productions. Together, we're working our way through the good, the bad, and the mysteriously frozen of the MCU. So listen up, A-Holes. We're going to talk about Agent Carter Season 2. Oh, welcome back to Agent Carter, right? I know. Isn't this great? A literal and figurative ray of sunshine as she moves out west. (laughs) And especially after how dreary it has been living in the Netflix air quotes MCU. It's it's quite a thing. And, And I get to talk about one of the top five best villains in the entire MCU right now. Wow, well, that's pretty serious. Well, I mean, you're. We should have a conversation if you agree. But Whitney Frost is. Oh yeah. Very high up there. I mean. Yeah. Uh, I mean, certainly, longtime listeners to the show have heard me complain that most of the villains are garbage. You know, in the MCU, they are. <laughs> right. They're just. They're just there to sort of, uh, per, you know, get the plot kicking. They're not really very mm-hmm. interesting or good. Uh, but Whitney is amazing. Yeah, she's very cool. So when it comes to Whitney Frost and the 616, she is very loosely based on someone from the comic books. Mm -hmm. She's also loosely based on a real world Hollywood starlet. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to talk about all that, but we're going to start with the Whitney Frost of the 616, also known as Madam Mask. All right. Uh huh. That's Mask with a Q-U-E. Because yes, she's classy. So Whitney begins her life as Julieta Nefaria, daughter Nefaria. of... Nefaria. You're damn right, Nefaria. <laughs> if ever there was a villain last name, that's it. Right? I've said this before. You've got to be careful about what you name your children or what your yes. surname is. Mm-hmm. You know. Hey, I think that uh, I think that Nefaria kid's going to turn out okay. Well, you're wrong, because this is a superhero <laughs> universe. <laughs> Identity is absolutely destiny. (laughs) Yeah, you're, yes, yeah. And in fact, you can tell he's especially bad because he is a count. And so his name is actually Mm -hmm. Count Lucina Nefaria. So his supervillain name is Count Nefaria. (laughs) Come on. Yeah, this was never going to turn out any other way. Exactly. Uh, Count Nefaria is also the head of the Magia, the organized crime family of the Marvel 616. Mm-hmm. And seeing as how this company was started by a lot of Jewish men, like in the 30s and 40s originally, and then, of course, Marvel's into the 60s. But we're still talking about guys who probably had some street hoods like in their family, you know, like <laughs> some of us go and write and that's how we work for the family. And some of us become garment dealers and some of us become hoods like that's just how right. it is. So they did not want to upset the actual mafia uh-huh, is the sure. word around the campfire. Right. So they introduced mm-hmm. the Magia two G's. Mm-hmm. Now it's completely distinguishable. Just you know. cloaked. Yeah. Le- uh, <laughs> similar, but legally distinct. Um, yes. <laughs> And Nefaria is the head of one of those families, and it's the biggest, most important family, so he is the head of the organization as a whole. Now, Julieta come Whitney's mother died in childbirth, and Count Nefaria mm-hmm. wanted her to have a normal life. So he allowed one of his employees to adopt her, one of his legitimate employees. Aha. Uh-huh. Now, she is the daughter of Byron and Loretta Frost. Okay. Whitney grows up to be a socialite and a debutante. And after the completely natural deaths of her adopted parents, Count Nefaria reappears in her life, reveals her true parentage, and then asked her to take his place as the leader of the Magia. Wow. Now, there is some shady manipulation because at first this very bright woman says, no, thank you. What? You know. Mm-hmm. So he does some manipulating of her and Whitney finally agrees. And Nefaria trains her in strategy, tactics, combat, business, and of course, crime. <laughs> And frankly, she's amazing at all of it. Mm-hmm. And when Nefaria goes to prison, she becomes the new Big M, which is the title of those who lead her father's crime family. 
Right. This brought her into conflict with Iron Man, which eventually caused a plane crash that she barely survived and left her beautiful face scarred. Ooh. She was saved by a very one-note supervillain called Midas, who gave her a gold mask to wear, hiding her scarred face. Mm-hmm. And she started calling herself Madame Mask. And as Madame Mask, Whitney has gone on to a fairly illustrious career as a supervillain and criminal mastermind. Huh. She is not without her quirks, however. <laughs> She is deeply paranoid and has created dozens, if not hundreds, of copies of herself to act as decoys. Wow. She calls them bio-duplicates, and I'm not sure what the real story with them is, so I choose for my own sanity to assume that they are basically like S.H.I.E.L.D.'s LMDs, life model decoys. Okay. Okay. Because they're very lifelike, and they really do think they're her, which is... When is is she doing this? This is like the 60s? Is this... Were the life model decoys like a thing at that point? Or is this like... Oh, no, 100%. LMDs are like shield stuff from Jump. I believe... I wouldn't swear to this. I'd have to look to be sure. But I think... Like if this were a bar bet and I were laying money down right now, I would bet that LMDs were actually in the very first story that introduced S.H.I.E.L.D. and Nick Fury as an agent thereof. Not yet the director. Wow. Okay. I I would I know the flying cars were. I feel like LMDs were also. I mm-hmm. so yeah, they've been around a minute. And okay. they they are very much not LMDs, but also for my own sanity, I'm like, I'm just gonna assume those are basically LMDs because okay. otherwise mm-hmm. what are you cloning yourself and then just implanting your mem- your memories into a perfect clone of yourself and like, go get them, tiger, try not to get yeah. shot. <laughs> Difficult. Very difficult. Yeah. One of these bio-duplicates even went rogue and became mm-hmm. an ally of the Avengers. Oh, wow. This bio-duplicate sacrificed herself trying to defeat Count Nefaria. So do the bio-duplicates have their own identities? I mean, do they, or are they all, they're all pretending to be her, so they would all go by Madame Mask or Count Nefaria. Like the bio-duplicates... I'm fascinated by this. Do they have their own consciousness? They have their own idea. I mean, clearly this one, you know, switched to the other side. I think the answer is sometimes. Yeah. So they all think that they are Madame Mask. Like they believe that they are unless they are in her presence. Like she has kind of used them as foot soldiers before. And then they act just kind of more like, you know, Mm -hmm. robotic extensions of her will, so to speak, you know. But when she is using them as full board duplicates, they all believe that they are her. And this is a thing that crops up now and then because there was an LMD of Nick Fury that actually thought the real Nick Fury was the LMD and the traitor and tried to murder him and take over for him in S.H.I.E.L.D. And he did an okay job of it, this LMD, you know, and several of Dr. Doom's robots he has Doombots, you know, that are yeah. basically the same, like robotic duplicates of himself to act as stand-ins or do- decoys or whatever. Several of those have decided that they were the real Doom and started doing things on their own initiative. Well, I mean, that whole thing is tragic. Like these, these yes. you know, for all intents and purposes, as far as they know, these people who have all of these memories and all of this experience only to find out that they're not real, but they've got to be real. They've got to have a certain level of consciousness. They've got to have like this is this is very like high level philosophical territory here <laughs> about the nature of consciousness and identity. Um, it's, it's pretty cool. Uh, LMDs. Bioduplicates and Doombots blow the lid off of anything Blade Runner was doing. <laughs> you know, they don't really deal with yeah. it a lot, you yeah. know, but definitely they do. And in this case, they do deal with it because this bioduplicate is murdered by Count Nefaria. Yeah. And he thinks it's Whitney when he does it. And he is overjoyed. He's like, ha ha, traitor, you know. Wow. The Avengers are horrified. Nefaria thinks it's awesome. Whitney sees this Uh and this causes her to side with the heroes against her father and renounce her criminal past because like this, this bio duplicate had come to her and said, I realize I'm not you, but I have all your memories, but I've taken this, you know, different path. And I think Mm -hmm. we, we can trust the Avengers and we should because our father is off his nut and needs to be stopped. (laughs) Yeah. And Whitney didn't go for it. So the, she, but she witnesses the bio dupe die and sees her father's glee at it. And she's like, yeah. that's it. 
I'm joining the Avengers at least long enough to fuck up daddy's plans. Right. Now, she so she does renounce her criminal past and they offer mm-hmm. her kind of like tentative membership or at least like a friendly alliance kind of thing. And she yeah. refuses and kind of rides off into the sunset just saying, I'm going to be Whitney Frost. Right. Mm-hmm. This, of course, does not last long because it's serialized storytelling and we can't let anyone have an ending and certainly not a happy one. My God. <laughs> right. But I will say it is a damn fine arc. For Whitney no, at I the time. I love all of that. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's good. Now, she's gone on to kind of re-enter things as a criminal mastermind and mm-hmm. with varying levels of success, both fictionally and metafictionally, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I'll put that in my back pocket because uh, if we if we get a little pressed for things to chat about later uh, in the series, I will talk about how... Again, maybe Brian Michael Bendis should not be rehabilitating and writing female characters all the time. You know, (laughs) just keep it in mind, you know. All right. Mm -hmm. Now, several things in Agent Carter suggest that Whitney's connection to the 616 counterpart, because you can see they don't have a lot in common otherwise. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there's like suggestions, you know, like this genius and the mastermind. And we do Mm -hmm. get, a, you know, like a scar that she's going to have to cover and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So mostly they just kind of homage it. Right. Um, If you heard Mm -hmm. them mention some of the names of Whitney's movies, one of them is Uh The Woman in the Golden Mask. Oh, Another is The Nefarious Daughter. Uh Aha. My personal favorite is that they mention a movie called Tales of Suspense, which is actually the title of the comic book that she originally appeared in fighting Iron Man. Oh, cool. And if you've got a sharp eye, you will notice that there are golden drama masks hanging in her dressing room at home and at the studio. Oh, very cool. So very cool. Now, the real world person that Whitney Frost is based on is Hedy Lamarr. Ms. Lamarr was a Viennese immigrant to America who became a Hollywood star during the golden age of Hollywood. But she was also friends with Howard Hughes, who gave her equipment that allowed her to run experiments in her trailer while she was filming. Oh, my God. I freaking love Hedy Lamarr. (laughs) Right? She was a brilliant inventor and largely self-taught, largely self-educated. Yeah. And the thing that I love most about her is that we are still using one of her ideas today. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to quote Wikipedia here just to kind of cut to the chase. But yeah. During World War II, Lamar learned that radio-controlled torpedoes, an emerging technology in naval warfare, could easily be jammed and set off course. She thought of creating a frequency-hopping signal that could not be tracked or jammed. She contacted her friend, composer and pianist George Ann Thiel, to help her develop a device for doing that, and he succeeded by synchronizing a miniaturized player piano mechanism with radio signals. They drafted designs for the frequency hopping system, which they patented. Now, that's Wikipedia. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. this technology was difficult to implement. And at the time, the Navy wasn't really taking ideas from anybody that wasn't in the Navy. Sure. So they wound up not using it until the 60s. -hmm. We, however, use an invention that incorporates parts of Lamar's spread spectrum technology. And we use it literally every single day. We call Mm -hmm. it Bluetooth. Oh, my God. Hedy Lamar is the goddamn best. It's pretty great. Like, there's a whole there's a yeah. whole alt history fanfic of Hedy Lamar that I would and probably should write. I mean, it's just yes. great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it was actually because of the integration of her ideas into Bluetooth that she was posthumously inducted into the Inventors Hall of Fame in 2014. Wow. Very cool. Very mm-hmm. cool. And we're going to see more of that. Like, we see that already with, with Whitney in these episodes, but it's not going to stop, you know, Yeah, mm-hmm. that she's just this genius. That's also beautiful. And she gets into pictures because we're not taking ladies seriously because it's the 40s, mm-hmm. etc. You know? Yeah. Very cool. We got a few more things, though. The Council of Nine. Mm-hmm. Now, I felt like there was probably an analog to the Council of Nine because there's a lot of secret societies across, you know, uh, my favorite trash genre fictions. Sure. Mm-hmm. What's fascinating about the Council is that Tara Butters and Michelle Fizikas have confirmed that the Council of Nine is, for all intents and purposes, the secret empire from the 616. 
Wow. Now, I've mentioned the Secret Empire on a previous episode. I believe it was in terms of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. because, like, Roxxon and Hydra Mm -hmm. owned everything, Mm -hmm. you know. And that looked a lot like the Secret Empire. Uh, You may recall that they have a division willing to move into parallel dimensions in order to make business deals and plunder civilizations. So they're (laughs) lateral thinkers. (laughs) And in my research for this episode, I also accidentally discovered that the symbol the council uses is the same one Hydra uses in the season three of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Oopsie, but whatever. I knew Hydra was going to be around because of stupid Grant. Right. So no real spoilers. You're just going to see yeah. that symbol again, you know, mm-hmm. tying the council to the secret empire to Hydra, etc. Yes. Okay. Zero matter. We have to talk mm-hmm. a little about zero matter, but I really don't want to get crazy into it. Yeah. One reason is I've talked about it a little bit before because zero matter is also dark force, mm-hmm. which we talked about when blackout showed up on agents of shield. Yes. And I'm thinking I've probably said everything I want to say about the Dark Force until we get to Cloak and Dagger. Uh Uh-huh. Because the Dark Force is integral to Cloak's, like, powers and problems. (laughs) So this seems to be showing up a lot, though. I mean, and and part of it could be the way in which they are, you know, um, kind of... uh, conceptualizing the design you know in cgi but it looks a lot like the gravitonium from yeah. the first season of um of agents of shield it looks a lot like that mysterious rock that swallowed simmons at the end of season two of agents mm. of shield um that kind of liquid thing you know um so it's one of those things that i think like i feel like i don't know if they're just reusing the same cgi or if all of this stuff is supposed to be related I would guess it's more the former than the latter, because I don't think Mm -hmm. there's any connection between Gravitonium and Dark Force. Okay. And I don't know enough about the rock that eats people to Mm -hmm. talk about it yet. But that could, I mean, who knows what they're doing with the Inhumans, right? That could be tied Mm -hmm. to the Dark Force. Um, And I'm actually very interested to get to the Cloak and Dagger show to see if they are... Inhumans or related Mm -hmm. to Inhumans, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, I'm I'm curious how they'll do that. But because it's so tied to Cloak, I'm going to, you know, put a pin in it. I talked about it already. Mm -hmm. I'm aware of it, friends. It's there. (laughs) I just feel like we ought to, you know. Put the, right. Put the if we talk on. about everything that could possibly be connected, then we will never <laughs> talk about anything else. Right. And in fact, mm-hmm. I was kind of guessing I, I did go and check to make sure that I was that I was correct. But mm-hmm. I was actually kind of guessing that zero matter was dark force because I was like sucks up energy. Very, very cold. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A crack in reality. Let me go look. Yep. Sure enough. <laughs> it's dark force. So I have one more little tidbit that just Mm -hmm. delighted me to no end that nobody else will care about, I think. But Mm -hmm. nevertheless, you may have noticed that Howard Stark is shooting a film. Yes. The name of that film is Kid Colt Outlaw. (laughs) And as Peggy points out, it's based on a comic book. Mm -hmm. They're even holding some copies of it on the set. And what you might not have realized is that's based on a real Marvel comic. Is that an actual Marvel comic? I was wondering that. Yes, ma'am, it is. And in fact, it's one that we have gently discussed before. Mm -hmm. Kid Colt Outlaw is one of the three titles alongside Millie the Model and Heart Eyes of My Life, Patsy Walker, (laughs) to survive in continuous publication from the Timely Days into the Marvel. You might remember Uh I mentioned there were only a few that had the Timely logo and then lasted long enough to get the Marvel logo. Mm -hmm. Kid Colt Outlaw, one of those. So. Okay. Now, he's a pretty typical Western hero, honestly, and he shares a lot of DNA with another timely creation, the Rawhide Kid. Like, they were really Mm -hmm. just like, make some Western comics, you know. Right. And Mm -hmm. for my money, the most fascinating thing about Kid Cold Outlaw is that it started its run in 1948 and didn't finish until 1979, which makes it the longest running Western comic book of all time. How cool. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 And I can't imagine anyone beating that record at this point. Like, there are still a few Western comics out there, but nobody is like, we're going to pump these suckers out monthly and sell a bajillion copies. That's just not how it works anymore. You know? <laughs> right. So right. I think it's probably going to hold that uh, that record 
basically forever. But it makes me glad. Obviously, the people working on the show are at least generally aware yeah. of the Marvel bench, you know. Yeah. So. No, I love it. I love that little uh, Easter egg reference. I think that's great. I love the way they named all of those movies that Whitney's in yes. to kind of reference all of this stuff. It's 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 really nice. Like this is stuff that I, of course, it goes right over my head. But when you pull out all these Easter eggs, I'm like, that's you know, that's some nice work that people are really like you know drawing on the universe for this kind of consistency. I can't even imagine the size of the database that is the Marvel Cinematic Universe story bible. Like I I can't. I can't be I'm sure that they've got one. I'm sure that they've got one where they research all of this stuff and they pull it all out. But my God, it's got to be just insane. Uh, just in case anyone working in that division is listening, I am available. <laughs> I can help out. It would be great. And I really yes. love it when they mention weird comic book titles, honestly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Kid yeah. Cole Outlaw, of course. But the fact that they did Tales of Suspense for yeah. one of Whitney's movies. And we just got mm-hmm. done talking about Ant-Man where they were like, tales to astonish. Am I right? Yes. You know, <laughs> I love I, I think that there was a journey into mystery joke for Thor also, but it's been a minute. So, yes. No, I, I think I remember you talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. So I love I love but, all that. I love that stuff. And those kind of callbacks are just, del- you know, delightful. I like all that stuff. It is. It's really great. And I mean, the thing is that it's one of those things that like they don't have to do. Yeah. You know, but it makes it better when they do. And I mean, the fact is that they're going to they're going to need to name it something. They're going to talk about Whitney's movies. They got to name it something. So why not pull from the Marvel, you know, um, canon there and uh, and pull some of those references out. But it's just it's so cool and delightful that they do that so that people like you who know this stuff, you know, (laughs) can be like, oh, how how cool you know i mean i I absolutely love it yeah now i'll also say they're casting shang chi which will be a kung fu marvel movie Uh uh-huh so i really feel like there's only a matter of time before we go and do a western marvel movie and Mm -hmm. they've already laid the track for kid colt you know Interesting. And they have a bunch of Western heroes. It would be easy for them to do like an Avengers of the Old West kind of thing. Oh, wow. That'd be really interesting. And for those of you who have fond memories of the Will Smith Wild Wild West movie of the 90s, it won't hold up. Don't watch it again. But that's what it would be like only good. How fun. Yeah, I remember that movie not being that great, but I always enjoy Will Smith. It's always fun to spend a little time with Will Smith, even under the worst of circumstances. No, it's true. And I love the show that that movie is based on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's yeah, it's just my son and I watched it not very long ago. And I was like, oh, I remembered this better. Yeah. But the stuff that I remembered, I really liking, I liked. And it's mm-hmm. it's been on my mind where I would be like a kid cult, um, rawhide yeah. kid. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's El Diablo is their mask, like kind of Zaro guy, but that might be yeah. DCs. They're very similar mm-hmm. and I get them confused. <laughs> but it would be great, you know, fighting some, you know, time traveling clockwork spider. Th- anyway, the track is that laid is all I'm time. saying. All right, so I think it's probably about time that we get started talking about Agent Carter Season 2. In The Lady in the Lake, Peggy is sent to Los Angeles to work in the California SSR office with Sousa, who's dealing with a mysterious murder where a dead woman is found frozen in a block of ice in a lake on the hottest day of the year. Suspicion surrounds politician Calvin Chadwick, who had been having an affair with the victim and whose wife, actress Whitney Frost, is not pleased. Howard Stark sends Jarvis to be Peggy's chauffeur, and we meet his delightful wife, Anna. Peggy zeroes in on Chadwick's company, Isodyne Industries, as the source of the science behind the murders. The Lady in the Lake aired on January 19th, 2016, and was written by Brant Engelstein, with Sue Chung as executive story editor. This episode was directed by Lawrence Trilling. In A View in the Dark, Peggy meets Seuss's new squeeze, a lovely nurse named Violet, who invites her to join them for dinner, much to Seuss's discomfort. Peggy and Sousa get a search warrant for Isodyne Industries, but it's closed because of a radiation leak. 
Luckily, scientist Jason Wilkes gets a message to Peggy that he's willing to meet her to tell her what he knows, but it's at a swank nightclub. And it ends up being more date, less information gathering. After a shootout at Griffith Park Observatory that sends both Jarvis and Sousa after Peggy to rescue her, she and Wilkes make their way to Isodyne Industries to get the evidence they need. And while Wilkes is retrieving the zero matter at the heart of all the trouble, Whitney Frost confronts him. The lab explodes and Peggy makes it safely out, but Wilkes is killed and Frost absorbs the zero matter into her body. A View in the Dark aired on January 19th, 2016, and was written by Eric Pearson and Lindsay Allen, with Sue Chung as executive story editor. This episode was directed by Lawrence Trilling. In Better Angels, Peggy mourns the loss of Wilkes as a smear campaign against him begins, and he is framed and blamed for everything. Peggy continues to investigate Chadwick and Isodyne Industries. Meanwhile, Whitney Frost is leaking zero matter from a rift in her forehead, so, you know, cool, cool, cool. The case back in New York with Dottie Underwood is connected, as the pin that Dottie stole there belongs to members of a club in Los Angeles. Jack Thompson comes out and takes over the L.A. office as FBI agent Vernon Masters promises him great rewards if he turns over the evidence found at Wilkes' house. Peggy infiltrates the arena club and places bugs that all short out. While there, she sees that they are trying to steal the election for Chadwick. Objects start to float around Peggy, and Howard Stark uses science to reveal the ghostly form of Jason Wilkes hovering around her. He's alive, but not corporeal, and he reports Whitney Frost's presence at the lab before disappearing again. Peggy checks in on Frost, and Frost sends an assassin after her at Stark's mansion. On set, when Frost's director makes the move on her, he sees the zero matter in her forehead, and then it comes out of her and swallows him whole. Better Angels aired on January 26, 2016, and was written by Jose Molina with Sue Chung as executive story editor. This episode was directed by David Platt. Okay, so Joshua, here we are back with Agent Carter. And I have to say, it's kind of delightful. We get this whole new space for her. It's yeah. we're transplanting her from New York, where she was in the first season, to Los Angeles in the second season. The whole thing has a different feel. Um, but it's kind of cool. And I have to say, I want all the fashions from the 1940s to come back. I don't <laughs> want the social politics to come back. But I want the fashions. I want the suspenders and the men with hats and the women with those dresses and the hats. I just, I love the hats. Well, I feel like you would love the hats until you had to spend as much time on your hair with hat pins and hair pins as yeah, they did. I don't then. know. You know, I think if I was wearing hats now, I would spend much less time on my hair than I already do. Yeah, that's how it Being works girl, for the fellas. Joshua. Yeah, you know, but patriarchy <laughs> infects everything. You you had to like lock your hat into your hair back then. That's very true. That's whereas very the true. men just brill creamed the shit out of their head and stuck a hat on top of it. <laughs> Still, I love it. I love the suspenders. I love the whole thing. I think it's adorable. And the super, super short ties. Okay, that I was literally about to say, I love the hats. And I used to wear a fedora before assholes made that not a thing I wanted to do out in public. Right. Here in the year of our Lord 2019. Um, <laughs> and I do love suspenders. Suspenders are dope. I'm there for that. But those short ties just make me want to punch everybody. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> They're so cute. I mean, cute, right? Because they look like clowns. Ridiculous looking, but kind of cute. Like and a, I don't know. I just, I love the, I love the whole fashion of the forties. I could, if I could bring that back, I absolutely would. But I lack that power. Um, <laughs> but still, I think that there's a lot of fun stuff going on in these first three episodes of Agent Carter. Um, I love. I mean, the first thing that that hopped out at me is that we have all these kind of love triangles going on. Yes, you know, with the women around the men. We have Anna Jarvis, who is played by Lotta Verbeek, who played the unbelievably psychotic Galus Duncan in Outlander and was delightful. <laughs> and her as Anna is, she is such a goddamn delight. She makes me so happy in my heart that this is actually what got me off the Jarvis Peggy ship. Because you know I was on that ship a little bit. Season one I really like Jarvis and Peggy, um, but I am willing to accept them as a more brother-sister type of relationship because Anna is the best. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just can't imagine Jarvis deciding to gamble with that relationship. It's too damn good. 
Oh, but you know, here's the thing, though. What I was getting at that I love is that we have this like love triangle, you know, quote unquote, sort of set up this threat from the other woman, which is a thing that we see a lot. And it always sets up this highly, you know, internally misogynistic, you know, relationship between mm-hmm. women where they're all fighting over a man. But here we don't have that. Anna is delighted by Peggy. And when Peggy and Jarvis are sparring and they end up in that terrible sex fall bullshit that I absolutely hate. Although in this particular instance where they're, you know, they're actually sparring, you know, fine. But they end up in this prone position. And Anna walks out and she's just like, yeah, y'all ready for breakfast? Like she is A, not threatened at all by Peggy. B, loves Peggy. C, trusts Jarvis. And D, and I'm not sure if this is textual, but I think she'd probably be into a threesome if that was going to come up, you know? (laughs) Listen, she does seem somewhat smitten by Peggy. And again, as you say, who who can blame her? Yes, exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I yeah, I doubt we get any textual fun there. But yes, I'm perfectly willing to accept that headcanon. That oh, I think, be I think a lot it. of Verbeek brought that into the part. And I absolutely love it. I love that we don't have Peggy and Anna fighting over Jarvis. I think that's wonderful. And we've also got this situation with Peggy and Violet and Sousa, right? Yes. And Sousa seems very nervous. There appears to be some backstory about what happened, you know, uh, between seasons with Sousa and Peggy in New York. Uh, because the last thing we saw was that, you know, he had asked her, I think, out for a drink. Mm-hmm. And she had said she couldn't go but she you know took a rain check or whatever and there was kind of this hint of romance in the air but we never actually saw anything but based on rose rose who was also delightful (laughs) um rose and rose's concern about peggy and what peggy was going to think when she met violet and all of that stuff there's clearly some backstory there that we we haven't quite gotten you know all of um but here we have susa he's with violet he's about to ask this this lovely nurse to marry him violet shows up in the office she is delightful she and peggy get along wonderfully there is no fighting there is no you know eye scratching or hair pulling or hold my earrings there's none of that bullshit peggy and violet get along beautifully and violet invites her out to dinner not realizing of course that susa was planning on proposing at Uh that dinner um peggy is is clearly a little bit on the back foot um, you know, we have this moment where she says she's been calling Susan and he hasn't returned mm-hmm. her phone call. So something, something went down before he went out to Los Angeles. Um, but I, but this whole thing, like it puts Peggy a little bit on the back foot, but she is not at all, you know, interested in trying to disrupt his life or what's going on. I mean, she seems a little sad about it, which I yes. think is, is absolutely legitimate. But in no way is she like, well, I hate this bitch. Like she and Violet <laughs> get along beautifully. Yeah. And I love that we're not kind of defaulting to these misogynistic tropes as a conflict. Well, you know, we're letting it just sort of be and we're letting these women have beautiful, wonderful, supportive relationships with each other. I absolutely love that. Yeah, that's hard to disagree with. I mean, mm-hmm. th- once you start mentioning it, it is very difficult to miss how many ways this could have yeah. gone badly, you know, mm-hmm. or or if not badly, it could have gone obviously, you know. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. But no, yeah, instead we just get this like network of women who are comfortable with one. They're women of dignity, you know. Yes. Like even yes. Dottie, you know. Yes. In oh her God, way. Dottie. Is... Just like I say, a woman of dignity, like she's not prepared to sink to a level. None of them are prepared to sink to a level where subterfuge, like if it takes subterfuge to get that man, don't get that man, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And okay, now can we talk about Dottie? Because Dottie's just in the beginning. Uh She's amazing. She's wearing that kick-ass outfit. And oh my God, she looks amazing. Then we have Peggy doing the interrogation, right? And with Dottie, I don't know if you've seen Killing Eve, but Dottie and Peggy have a real Killing Eve kind of vibe going on here. (laughs) I have not. And now I want to see Killing Eve. You should. You should. But there is very much a sense of these two. There's there's almost a sexual tension. Oh, what almost do you mean almost? Tension. Dottie is into I mean, her. Dottie's, Dottie's into it. But it's also one of these things that like uh, Agent Carter doesn't really go there uh, textually. You know, yeah. Um, but I think it's it's definitely in the subtext, and I think that Dottie is definitely into it. And then when when Agent Carter leaves, when Peggy leaves, and she's dealing with Jack Thompson, 
She's, you know, it's basically like, you are not my equal. I am not interested in this thing you've got going on here. <laughs> and then ends up, of course, getting sprung, right? Yes. Um, yeah, so it's it's kind of amazing. Bridget Regan as Dottie, she has this wonderful uh, instability, the, the pinwheels in the eyes, you know, yes. kind of going. Yes, it's true. And at the same time, it, it makes her beautifully unpredictable and yet um, still, like, engaging and um, interesting. And there's something about her that, like, even though she's the bad guy, like, you can't help but love her. So I agree so much that my favorite part of these three episodes actually involves Dottie. Yes. And that is all uh-huh. I will say until we get to the end because okay. it's pretty okay. good. She's not in there much, but where she is, she's absolutely fantastic. And um, we also have Leslie Boone returning as Rose. Mm-hmm. And oh my God, I love Rose giving Seuss a shit about handling uh, Violet and Peggy. <laughs> uh, she clearly knows whatever was going on. And, you know, Seuss is her boss, you know, um, and she's not at all concerned with any of that. You know, she's like <laughs> just talking to him and uh, and advising him and mocking him as as is Jew. Um, she is so wonderful when Peggy comes in, when she's telling Peggy that she's going to get sunburnt. <laughs> yes. And giving her advice. Well, here's the thing about Rose that I Mm -hmm. really love Mm -hmm. is that she is indispensable and she knows it. Absolutely. She's fantastic. That's why she can give her boss a little bit of ribbing. She knows he can't live without her. Yeah. And if we go back to the very first episode of Agent Carter, Rose is the viewpoint through which we saw Peggy from the rank and file SSR people. You know, like Mm -hmm. I don't think Rose wants to go to the field. She's mm-hmm. she's happy being part of the, uh, you know, espionage apparatus. Being the support team. Yes. Right. So she yeah. doesn't want to, like, become Peggy. But she was the person who, in that very first episode, we could see she was like, man, you, Peggy, you're you're doing Peggy's it for cool. us. You know? Yeah. And exactly. here Rose is doing it for herself now. It's great. Yes. Rose is awesome. I love L.A. Rose. I think this is fantastic. And she's so, so much fun. I love that actress. I love everything. So we have got a slate of amazing women um, in this show. But the boys are are not doing so bad. We've got uh, Enver Jokai back as Sousa. Mm-hmm. Um, beautiful, fun, awkward. Uh, whatever is going on with him and Peggy and their backstory, I have no idea, but it's obviously uncomfortable. He obviously has still has very strong feelings for Peggy. I'm not sure that Peggy Carter is a woman one gets over. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if our other example is anything to go by, um, Steve Rogers broke time. Yeah. To get yeah. back with uh with Peggy. So, you know, oh, uh sorry, end game spoilers. Tough luck. You're listening end to this game. podcast, you guys saw the movie. It's fine. <laughs> but we have this lovely um interaction, you know, from Susa and Peggy. It is so tense and wonderful and yet respectful and affectionate. And so I love the way that they're playing that. I love the way that they're not like there's this backstory and we don't know what's happened yet, but they're not over explaining it. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not doing this whole big expositional thing. They're just letting it sit there. You know, Uh, Thompson accuses him of running off to L.A. after whatever it is that happened with Peggy, that he was actually going to L.A. to escape whatever that was um and uh and so it's it's really nice but when peggy's in danger you know susa loses his shit Mm -hmm. and i mean clearly like i don't know he's he's got a ring he's ready to ask violet to marry him i'm a little concerned about how much he clearly still has very strong feelings for peggy what i like about these interactions is that whatever happened in this you know between mm-hmm. the season's time, it's yeah. pretty obvious that Peggy and Sousa were interested in one another but never got out of the blocks, right? Like they were friends yeah. and associates and respected one another. And maybe there was a glimmer of more, but we never really started that yeah. race. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's because he got transferred to L.A. and then he met Violet. I mean, there's it could be very benign. I don't know. I mean, know. it sounds like something happened, like something happened. And then he left because Thompson was like, you know, you, you ran off to L.A. to get away from Peggy. Well, you know? sure, so but Jack Thompson is a happened. dick and cannot be trusted. So OK, yeah, he's not exactly a reliable narrator. <laughs> Fair enough. 
But still, I think that, and Rose, like if it was just flirting and subtle stuff, Rose wouldn't know about it. Thompson wouldn't know about it. And there wouldn't be all this tension between Susan and Peggy. It's, I don't know. It's true. I'm, I feel like there was I'm one disastrous date. And who knows? You know. <laughs> who even knows? And we'll find out. But I love the fact that they're teasing us yes. so relentlessly with this. I think it's beautiful. Um, we also have James Darcy as Jarvis, who is in my heart in such a way. I cannot tell you how much I love Jarvis. I love when he comes picking her up. He's got a flamingo in the backseat. He's like, please let me drive you around. I'm so bored, you know. And then we find out that he's been working out so that he can secret agent it up whenever Peggy happens to drop yep. back in, you know. Yep. Um, all of it is so wonderful. And then, you know, of course, we get this wonderful, you know, quick moment where he's got the, uh, you know, the voice activated or whatever thing in the house. And he's like, I have no desire to spend the rest of time as a disembodied voice. But of course, Jarvis Whoops. is the, the voice in, in the Iron Man suits that... That, uh, that Tony Stark names, you know, the uh, the AI there. Um, so that's really lovely. It's just kind of a lovely little nod to uh, to Jarvis's future, if not in, you know, reality in his, uh, you know, in his in memory, how he is, how he is, you know, memorialized by Tony Stark. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But I mean, Jarvis Tony is just doesn't lovely. memorialize a lot, right? So no. We don't really know all the connection he had with Jarvis. We've never seen that, Mm -hmm. you know, on screen. But it's also pretty clear he's got some strong emotional ties there. And I imagine Jarvis probably raised him for the most part. More or less. Yeah, I think you're right. I imagine he probably did, you know. Um, So that's kind of it's really lovely. I, I love his relationship with Anna. I love the way that she is so bold, you know, and he's mm-hmm. so reserved. Um, it's just, they're so wonderful together. I, I absolutely love both of them. Uh, James Darcy and Lotta Verbeek are just so amazing in those roles. And it is so delightful. Like, I can't express how much of these episodes I just spent giggling <laughs> like a child. I was so delighted by so much hey. of this. If we could see a, even if it was just a mini series or whatever, but it was basically mm-hmm. a thin man, Jarvis and yeah. Anna, you know, solve yeah. a mystery. Oh, please. hell yes. Come on. Take my money. <laughs> yes. It would be amazing. Um, we also have Chad Michael Murray back as Jack Thompson being Thompson. You know, God, I, uh, I don't really, Thompson. I don't really care. Like, I don't really care about him. I, you know, there's this whole thing with him and Kurtwood Smith as the FBI guy, Vernon, who's it's and I, all that kind of stuff. Like, I don't care. It, it it all connects because Dottie was stealing a pin from this arena club, right. which is essential to this plot. So at least they pulled it in and connected it together. Um, seems a little bit of working the coincidence machine, but whatever. It's fine. You know, I like the fact that we're pulling Dottie back in. I want her to be a part of this party. Right. You know? Um well, and, the Thompson and coming it's in not is, crazy. I will say it's not yeah. crazy because if uh, if if we assume the red room is tied to Leviathan, right? Yes. And mm-hmm. Hydra, there's Hydra. We mm-hmm. don't really have a shield yet, and we also know that yes. Hydra is basically going to poison shield from jump. You know, mm-hmm. at this stage, there's really only two games in town: Hydra and Leviathan. Yeah. Well, she's on the outs yeah. with Leviathan. So she's got to go right. mess with Hydra. And mm-hmm. I know that they're not confirming that the Council of Nine is hardcore in the tank for Hydra, but it gets there <laughs> sometime, you know. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's I really think it's um, it's definitely one of those coincidences. I But it's one that does not bother me because I am like they've really only established two big organizations she could go take right. the piss out of, mm-hmm. you know. So There aren't that many games in town, yeah. right? So if you're going to be bad, you got to go with one of them and they're all connected. Um, so yeah, I, I, and I'm fine. Like, it, it's a little, it's a little, it strains the coincidence machine a little bit, but not too badly. And honestly, if, if what we get is Dottie, then fine. Yes. I, I will pay that tax. I don't care. Well, and um, Vernon's connection to the council. Yeah. And having been kind of a mentor- to Jack, like, again, kind of squares that circle in a way where it's like, you know, it's a little coincidental, but if he's that big a wheel at the FBI, then it makes sense that the council Mm -hmm. would want him on their side. And, you know, it spins out. And I don't even care if it gets Dottie out out there. I don't even I don't even care that that getting Dottie involved in this means that we have to have more Thompson. Like, fine. You know, I'll pay that tax. I don't care. Well, Um, and for me, the tax I'm paying the taxes Mm -hmm. to see Thompson be um, corrupt and inept. 
Yes. And I'm good yes, with the that. Yes, two things he that sucks. he's really good at. Yes. <laughs> yes, he's, he's pretty terrible. He's pretty terrible. Um, okay, so we have Dominic Cooper back as Howard Stark. And here's the thing, Joshua. Um, Howard Stark is gross in like a million different ways. And yet, I kind of love him and I worry about myself. <laughs> I have a lot of mixed feelings about Howard Stark. I am with you. Mm-hmm. I get it. Yeah. He's pretty obviously on some level objectifying the women that are around him. Yes. But but he also like knows their names, you know, and like yeah. involves mm-hmm. them in his shenanigans. It's not just for ogling purposes or whatever, you know? <laughs> That's true. That's and true. And he knows yeah. where the line is because he doesn't mm-hmm. do any of that to Peggy. Yeah, right? that's true. I, it doesn't, it sort of doesn't make it okay, but it also feels like a more nuanced womanizer. A more nuanced, disgusting human being. Yeah. But also, like, I love, I love how smart he is. I love that he takes this, you know, basically squirt gun and makes a ghost come back into reality. <laughs> right. Right. Like, I mean, I love I love too the way that like he is is working the science with Jason, you know, when Jason comes back as a ghost. Yeah. And they're connecting. So like his incredible intelligence and meanwhile, like also directing a movie. Like whatever. <laughs> this dude is like he does Holy a million man. things, yeah. you know. Yeah, he's just doing everything. So, um, so I'm charmed by Dominic Cooper that like his his portrayal of Howard Stark as gross as Howard Stark can be, um, charms me, uh, and I kind of I kind of can't help but love Howard despite the unbelievable grossness that is Howard Stark. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think he gets a lot of leash because of his interactions with Peggy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, especially like on the movie set, you know, right away when yeah. he's like, I had somebody call in sick. You, how do you feel about being a saucy bar wench? And she's like, I'd rather be the cowboy. <laughs> and his immediate response is, I like it. I like it. I don't think the yeah. audience is ready for it, though. And I was like, man, <laughs> meta commentary. Thank you, Howard. There you go. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. He's uh, I, I just I can't help it. Like, and the thing is, is that like. As I go through, you know, all of these shows that I talk about, all of this stuff, I always end up like really loving the terrible men, you know, <laughs> like the the dark, twisty, disturbed, <laughs> I'll take away your bucket men. Um, so this, that's a reference to Still Dead for those of you who are listening. Um, but uh, yeah, so I don't know, like every time one of these really disgusting men, and I'm like, yeah, no, it's working for me. No, I'm you're like... doing it right because you are loving <laughs> right. them in fiction. Right. Not in real life. <laughs> Not in real life. So I guess that's good. I have um, foolishly right. taken my fictional type and also been yes. involved with them in real life. Uh huh. It's working out in my marriage so far, but you know, well, good, good. I used to say that my type was Veronica's, as in Veronica and Betty from the Archie comics. Yes. I like Veronica's. Mm-hmm. I want them to be mm-hmm. a little mean to me, <laughs> and a lot mean to everybody else. You know. <laughs> Your wife is a goddamn delight. She she is, but she's also a little mean to me and a lot mean to everybody else. So <laughs> she's never been anything but lovely to me. She and I get along great. Uh, well, of course, it's not. I mean, she's not indiscriminate. I'm just saying. <laughs> and the real point of no, the story is no that Riverdale came along she's and messed no up the definition. With. Now nobody knows right. what I'm talking about when I say I like Veronica's. Uh. I see, but you're an old classic comic book guy, so you got to look at the you got to look at the original reference. That's right, got to go um, back. So, see, right, you're so doing have... it right. Is the bottom line? You're doing it right. Okay. All right. Good. Good. I'm glad. Um, all right. So we have this uh, new character, this scientist, Jason Wilkes, right, played by Reggie Austin, and um, I have a real conflict about this whole thing with him. Um, on the one hand, I am really, really happy to see a little diversity in the cast. Yes. I am really, really happy to see I want, you know, as much work for, um, you know, for actors of color, for disabled actors, for like everybody. Right. You know, um, and we have Sousa, of course, played by Anvera Jokai, who has this, you know, this disability. And he actually the actor doesn't. And that tends to be kind of a thing because there are plenty of actors actually with disabilities who could have had that role. But, you know. Whatever. Um, we get to um, 
to this point where we have a, an actor of color, you know, in this in this space. Um, and um, it's it's a little bit disturbing for me, I think, because what we have that, you know, this this diversity, which is wonderful. At the same time, we're not acknowledging the the racism we're treating racism in this like we acknowledge the segregation we acknowledge that people are really rude right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but we're not acknowledging how incredibly deadly this racism is how incredibly dangerous it is for a black man in 1947 even in california to be blatantly and clearly hitting on a white woman um you know in 1955 that is the accusation, which was later recanted by the woman who got this 14-year-old boy killed, that, that got Emmett Till, this 14-year-old child, lynched and murdered in Mississippi. And I know that was Mississippi. California is different from Mississippi. Um, but the racism in California at this time in the 40s was still virulent. It was still Absolutely. vile. It was still incredibly, incredibly dangerous for a black man, I mean, to even look at a white woman because she could say that he'd done something and that could and often did get people killed. Like this was serious business. But in this, we're treating racism. I mean, we're acknowledging that racism exists, but we're treating it as though it is a rudeness problem, as though somebody's going to say something mean and that is the worst thing that is going to happen. That is not at all the case, you know? So um, to me, I found that, um, it, it feels like a, a real disrespect for the reality of the situation back then. Um, it feels like we're making light of how dangerous this man's existence as a scientist, you know, as a black man scientist, um, you know, surrounded by this very white, very privileged community. That was dangerous enough. But for him to so blatantly flirt with Peggy um in front of everybody and then call her out to this nightclub in which he says, I thought it would be best to meet somewhere in public, somewhere where we wouldn't get a lot of looks. Right. But a white woman is incredibly dangerous, you know? Um, and, and, and especially this is a club that, um, that is a, a black club. It's got black singers, entertainers, you know, everybody there, most everybody there was black aside from the guy who was shadowing them, you know, trying to blend. Right. But, um, that felt really weird to me because they would be getting looks. Uh, a white woman in that in that space would be uh, probably, you know, it would be like a, a an area of unsafety, you know, brought well, into a space that was supposed to be safe, right? I okay. I have some really complicated feelings about all of this. Um, yeah, not because because some of what you say is spot on and some of it is a little more complicated and mm-hmm. and and again okay so for for context uh one of the things i really loved about peggy carter moving to uh southern california for this season mm-hmm. yeah was that noir set in gritty southern california is like one of my bread and butters you know um in fact oh, sure. the very yeah. first title in fact, the title of the very first episode is an homage to a Raymond Chandler novel, you know, mm-hmm. uh, The Lady in yes. the Lake. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's also an homage to Mallory and King Arthur. But listen, she's in Hollywood. <laughs> we know what's really going on in this instance, you know. Well, right. And we're not we're not in a not noir space. You know, I mean, this is this has noir elements. Sure. We got I mean, Femme it's, Fatale it's little, and Whitney Frost. We've yeah, got, you know. Yeah. It's a little pulpier. Than than straight yes. hard boiled mm-hmm. for sure, mm-hmm. but yes. the so it, but it's because of that interest in that um, in that fiction that I have a little bit like an armchair history background here. Good, good. And uh-huh. so here's the here's the like wild mix of stuff. The thing that you are one hundred percent right about is that I have a hard time imagining any black man flirting that openly with a white woman or even being alone with one. Yeah. For his own safety. Right. For his like own you are safety. spot on. There. Yeah. The the thing that I find really sort of interesting about the Peggy Carter space is that they are acknowledging that racism and sexism are things. Right. Like yes. and, and again, in se- season two, sexism is going to be much more front and center with Peggy and Whitney. Mm-hmm. But right. we're, we're at least acknowledging that it's that it's a thing. Uh, you mentioned mm-hmm. Sousa uses a 
out of date racist term now, you know. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um so so my first I, I like what they're doing with acknowledging it, but they can't yeah. really make it front and center because that's not what this show is about. You know? No, and I understand that, but I do think that you could do this and actually, you know, really ramp up that romantic tension just by acknowledging that there is this attraction between them. Sure. Yeah. You know, um, that there is this chemistry between them. Um, but that, I mean, he would be hesitant about it. And I think that that's something though, the way that he is so pretty brazen. flirtatious yeah. with her as though that's a, a remotely safe thing to do. Um, it, it feels like we're just simply not acknowledging how dangerous and toxic. No, you're um, you're right. In fact, racism is. In yeah. fact, because I want to talk about the nightclub because the nightclub is very cool. Yes. And then Souza does something that he means well, but I was just like, well, that's terrorism. Um, yeah. So the thing with nightclubs, and this was uh, less of a West Coast thing, uh, not non-existent, okay, but less of a West Coast thing. But back on the East Coast, you had speakeasies and jazz clubs. Yes. Which were mm-hmm. basically the only places or the only real obvious – it's hard to say public because a lot of them were – you know, you had to have the secret yes. password or whatever. Mm-hmm. But everybody was there. The mayor was there. The movie stars were yeah. there. And that was a place where African Americans and white Americans could coexist and mingle. Not exactly okay. as equals. Right. But there wasn't any place else for the white people to go and get a drink and enjoy jazz, which is a – an african-american invention you know yes Mm -hmm. so that's more east coast than west coast west coast was a little Mm -hmm. more segregated especially in la because uh what you had in la was a large group of black people from the south move there Mm -hmm. to take over like manufacturing jobs during the war yes there was no Mm -hmm. one to make the airplanes you know Mm -hmm. but then kind of like the ladies who had gone into the workforce the white men came home and were like you can go you know, yeah, and so this mm-hmm. is why LA is so deeply segregated even to this day. And I've mentioned on previous mm-hmm. podcasts, I think, when we've talked about LA for for whatever reason, that it was advertised as the Great White Spot. It was yes. never mm-hmm. that, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was more segregated. But since we're kind yeah. of playing with these really um, obvious, hard boiled or noir themes every now and then, these kind of tropes, I liked seeing what was basically a jazz speakeasy as a place where a black person and a white person could be in each other's space and yeah. not draw mm-hmm. too many comments i liked that, that yeah that's actually pretty mm-hmm. good um even the dancing i mm-hmm. maybe i mean it's you know it feels like white women are probably the most dangerous <laughs> it's like dancing with a lion it's pretty t- you know? yeah the, he might yeah. dance with you but he also might get you killed like i don't know it's to me like i guess i guess because um because i see how like dangerous that could be absolutely and i don't think that 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 even even with people socializing even with a a desegregated space like that you know or slightly desegregated i mean you know peggy i think peggy and the guy that was shadowing them were the only white people there Mm -hmm. i think yeah you know so it still feels highly segregated and it feels like something that might have been a safe space i mean susa said that he and violet went there to see ella fitzgerald so you know i mean white people were i guess going there um but it seems it seems like a very dangerous space for him to be in with such little concern for his own safety um and i think that you could have told like all of this story without necessarily making it about that but but acknowledging that racism is not rudeness yeah yeah you know racism is is not that we have the the guy at the uh convenience store whatever who is is really really rude you know, but that's not the danger mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that the uh, white people are very dangerous and have been traditionally very, very dangerous. Um, and I think you're 100 percent right about how they are nodding at it, but not taking it seriously enough. And yeah. And not acknowledging it. Sousa, how bad it is. Sousa sending a squad out to the jazz club to question mm-hmm. them is the thing that made me go, oh, they are really not. Yeah. They're just not, yeah, as you say, not taking it seriously enough. Because a squad of white federal cops comes into this jazz club. It doesn't matter how pleasantly they ask the questions. Everyone in there is in terror the entire time. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's complicated. Um, I don't, 
it, it's so interesting. I mean, this is a thing that I run into myself as a creator of fiction where I don't want to make everything about straight white dudes all the time. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So I have to figure out how to be. And I, this is not I don't want it to sound like, woe is me. This is a burden. I just really get this struggle because mm -hmm. yeah. I want to integrate these things in a realistic way without yeah. always making the story about that thing. Not because I'm shy about it, per se, but because it's not always my story to tell, you know? Right. But I think acknowledging it, I think you can tell all of this without it hijacking the story. I think that all you have to do is just change some of the context and tone yeah, yeah. of these interactions. And also, I think it would create such a great romantic tension oh, yeah. between these two. Well, I won't argue you with know, that. Um, Putting Peggy in the driver's seat of the new romance, yeah. like, mm -hmm. because he, yeah. even if he, she can tell he wants to reach out, but he won't do it. And her yeah. being in that space and also kind of not... In, I don't want to say not getting it because she's not dumb, but it's different in England in the 40s. Sure. You know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And also that she may not understand, you know, to a great deal. It is very easy for a white person to have no clue right. about any of this stuff. Yeah. It is very easy. I mean, privilege is blinding, you know. Um, so her being opened, like him opening her eyes to that, like this, like, you know, she wants to talk to him. Right. That being a dangerous space for him, not just because he works for the evil corporation. Right. But because of general societal, you know, restrictions yeah. that are there, yeah. um, I think adds a layer of, um, you know, of tension and of interest to this, that during this this romantic space between these two, I'm just sitting there going, come on, he's not stupid. Right. He like, is this definitely is playing with fire. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, in a really, really weird way. So, um, but I do, I like the actor, I like the character. Um, I love, like, after he becomes a ghost, you know, and he is, like, what a tension for him yes. when he's trying to figure all this stuff out. He's alive, but he's non-corporeal. Um, you know, he's working with Howard Stark. Um, you know, he's in this space over which he has absolutely no control over anything, but he has this incredible intellect that allows him to help with everything and be Stark's, you know, intellectual equal, mm -hmm. which I really, really like. You know, so we've got a lot of really great things going on there. It's just that I found it so distracting because clearly he's a very, very smart dude you know yeah um, I, I really and, like yeah. the parallels that they draw between yeah. him and Whitney also yeah because mm -hmm. Whitney is really the brains behind Isodyne, but we can't talk about right. it you know right and and mm -hmm. yeah I mean again this is the show that more focuses on sexism so that's the thing we're going to make front and center but if, if right. I think I'm I, I never disagreed right like I was just mm -hmm. like trying to cut him some slack for not making the show all about that thing all the time right um, mm -hmm. but at the same time now that i'm i'm saying how much i appreciate those parallels with whitney if they'd made that a bigger deal if they acknowledged it yeah, yeah. then those because they acknowledge sexism pretty well yeah um so yeah it's just it's one of those things where i'm i'm like and you don't have to change that much you really don't you know it's true you just it's have true. to change his attitude and his approach to her and his response to her you know, um, and uh, and also asking her to go to the, you know, to the nightclub because it's a safer space for him. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, that that I think like he's like, oh, I didn't want to draw too many looks. And I'm like, you're, you're going to draw looks, <laughs> you know. Um, but the idea that this is a space that is safer for him to talk to her, you know. Yeah. Um, so I I really do like I, I think you can do everything without hijacking the story. But you can also acknowledge when you fail to acknowledge these things, we bring a color blindness to these stories and you cannot have a color blindness color blindness erases experience yes you that's know? true um yes. at, at acknowledgement does not necessarily mean it has to hijack the story but i think that it is something that is um you know that that needs to be considered when you're telling all any of these stories you know where we're, we're bringing in somebody you know who is who is black and the experiences that black people have had you know throughout the centuries especially in a world where white people generally have been trying to ignore racism and racism pretend that it's not a thing you know um except for when they they use it to uh to be vile so um so it is it is a really uh it's it, I, I guess part of it is because it would have been so easy to fix 
without True. changing any of the like any of the big moments big movements of the story but overall i really really enjoyed these three episodes i thought it was fun it was very fun to see ray wise and kurt wood smith kind of coming in as these these evil you know old white men um on <laughs> yes. this council um so that's that's been kind of fun um and i just i have to say i found these three episodes to just be so much fun so delightful i i love the actors that we're using i love the the setting bringing it into los angeles with this whole different feel and vibe to it from the new york stuff uh, of last season um so i don't know i had a i had a great time with it how did you enjoy it overall these three episodes oh the same i mean they're Mm -hmm. they're very much in my wheelhouse in a lot of ways here you know yeah this Mm -hmm. this kind of man from uncle stuff is what i'm here for you know and i like Mm -hmm. that we're starting to nod towards the red menace you know, because we're moving mm-hmm. into the fifties. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's a communist, is what Doctor Wilkes is accused of being. You know that kind of yes. thing. I love mm-hmm. that. Um, I do like. I we just discussed it. It could be stronger, but I do like the flirting with actually making racism yeah. one of the things we're talking about. Because we talk, yeah. we mentioned in the first season that doesn't happen. Like there are yeah. Asian American SSR agents mm-hmm. when it's like, no. You know, and we're just not acknowledging yeah. any of it. Yeah, so, yeah. So, now no, we're doing a little bit better. I like yeah. all mm-hmm. this very, very much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, yes. No, I think it's real good. All right, so Joshua, what's your favorite part? Uh, my favorite part is when Thompson utterly fails <laughs> to interrogate Dottie Underwood and actually winds up in a position where she could murder him before anybody yeah. did anything about it. And instead <laughs> takes that opportunity to go, by the way, Peggy's better than you. <laughs> it is really lovely. I love it. It is really lovely. You need to watch Killing Eve because it is a very Killing Eve vibe. Okay, very good. Yes, yes, with her. Yeah. Um, I would say for my favorite part, uh, it is, God, it is a tight call between Anna Jarvis and Rose um, as far as like the most delightful stuff. But it has Anna. Anna is just delightful lot of verbeek who i loved of course in outlander as galus duncan mm-hmm. um and uh, she just brings this incredibly wonderful energy to this space with jarvis and also her existence as the kind of person that she is the kind of character that she is it, it puts such illumination on jarvis and on who jarvis is um and i find that to be just wonderful i loved it I agree. She is a delight. And it is really interesting to see the woman that Jarvis would throw his life away for, you know? Yes. And it makes sense. We get it. And she's worth it. Yes. She is absolutely worth it. Now, before we bounce out of here, I want to do something that we don't usually do. I would like to make a book slash movie recommendation. Yes, absolutely. The reason I'm going to mention it is we've talked about how the issues of race, especially in Southern California in the late 40s, are not being dealt with in the strongest manner here. And if anybody is listening to that conversation and thinking, but I'd like to see more of that, um, I am going Mm -hmm. to, I'm sure I've mentioned this on this podcast before, wouldn't surprise me, but I am going to recommend the book Devil in a Blue Dress by Walter Mm Mosley. Yes. There is also mm-hmm. a movie adaptation of the book that is excellent, starring Denzel Washington. So if you don't have time mm-hmm. to read the whole book, the movie is very good and gives you quite a lot of the same story beats. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, highly recommended. And then those go on into a series that actually follow the main character through time, like like through the decades. Oh, um, cool. But, but, uh, but Devil in a Blue Dress is very much right in this timeline and right in this geography that we're in with Peggy Carter. Mm-hmm. And of course, because our main character is an African-American man. Yes. The 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 complicatedness of that of moving through L.A. in 1947 in that way is just front and center. Highly recommended. Oh, I love it. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. We'll put that link in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation, would like to join in, come find us on Twitter. I am at Lonnie Diane Rich and Joshua is at Joshua Unruh. And the hashtag is listen up, a-holes. Both Chipperish Media and Pulp Diction Productions are entirely supported by listeners like you who are going to play a sassy beer winch in Howard Stark's movie. 
Show your support by visiting our Patreon pages or by leaving a great review on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for more people to find us and join in the conversation. The links to Apple Podcasts on both our Patreon pages are easy to find right there in your show notes. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Listen Up A-Holes. We will be back next time with our discussion of Agent Carter Season 2, Episodes 4 through 6. Until then, aside from danger, our middle name is Charm. Charm. 